Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Yeah, so guys, today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses uh, 9 through 11, okay? And honestly, this is a message of the same ilk as, uh, as what Pastor Sam preached on this morning. It's a, it's a message about giving back to God what he's given to us. Um, on top of that, uh, it has to do with affliction, and it has to do with dealing with affliction. And affliction in our Bibles is defined as uh, depression and anxiety, um, and it also has to do with discontentment, which I didn't know that Brandon was going to preach on discontentment last week, um, and I didn't know Sam was going to preach on, you know, Abraham, you know, having to sacrifice Isaac this morning, um, and I had already, you know, I've already decided that this is the message I'm preaching on, so I'm going to be content with it, and we're all going to have to be content as well. Um, but yeah, guys, the main thing that I hope we're able to take away from this message Um, is that there is a right way to deal with affliction, okay? There's a right way to deal with depression and anxiety. There's a right way to going about being miserable and being in seasons of of feeling miserable. Um, If we don't understand that, if we miss that, then uh, our depression, our anxiety, our discontentment, all of these things can take hold of us. They can take hold of us, and, and they can, you know, they can, what happens is we build up a wall between ourselves and, and God. And, and that's, that's not the right way of dealing with these things. So uh, I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll, we'll get into it, okay? Um, God, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for uh, the message that we got from Sam in, in, verse, in first service. Um, yeah, and God, just thank you for your word. Thank you for how, how clear it is, how you've given us examples of people throughout history who have who have worked through things. Thank you for the testimony of people who've suffered um, and, and had to go through trials, God, and that we're, able to, that we're able to pull from that and that we're able to apply it to our own lives. Um, God, we do want to lift up uh, Brandon and Alex and just the Boston Church plant as they're uh, hearing your word. And, um, you know, I don't know what their schedule looks like, but God, I pray that it would be edifying to them. It would be edifying to that, 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 uh, that whole church. Um, yeah, and God, that through just all the messages we've heard this morning and that people have heard this, this week, God, just that we would, be, uh, we would be changed by them, that our behaviors would be changed, that your word wouldn't wash over us, but it would, uh, it would stick with us and, and cause us to, to be more like you. So move me aside. Um, God, take away my nerves. We just want to hear from you now. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay. <clears throat> Guys, on days where stuff's going on in my life, I just forget to drink water, I forget it, and you know, I haven't, this is my first sip of water, so my brain is just like this shriveled little ball in my head right now, because it's extremely dehydrated. Okay, uh, so guys, we're going to be again in 1 Samuel chapter 1, all right, and um, I'm going to, I'm going to actually just take some time to, to be in uh, verses 1 through 8, we're going to be in that for a minute. Um, and then we'll get into verses 9 through 11. And when I say for a minute, I mean about 20-ish minutes. We'll be in verses 1 through 8, okay? So I'm going to read that. <clears throat> now there was a certain man of Ramathahim Sophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, and his son, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathrite. 
and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Okay, <clears throat> so uh, we're going to go over the details of these verses, and I'm going to emphasize certain things, and I'm going to just go surface level on some things, all right? We don't need to know every detail to, to understand verses 9 through 11, but we do want to understand the context so that we can understand verses 9 through 11. I think Miles Cheadle says it, context is key, right? And you probably heard it from somebody else, huh? Yeah. Context is key. So first of all, we, we, we know this guy. We meet this guy in verse 1 whose name is Elkanah, okay? And if I was him, I'd just go by Elk. I'd say, man, just call me Elk. That's a cool nickname. Uh, and we get some of his genealogy in verse 1. We see that he's of this mouthful of a town. It's Ramathaim Sophim of Mount Ephraim. To me, it sounds like a rap lyric. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll put that away. Um, and, and basically, this is just a small country town um, on, a, on a hill. It's, it's, it's high up. It's about eight miles north of Jerusalem, according to one of my Google searches that I did in prepping for this. Okay, now I'm going to list off some stuff about Elkanah here. Uh, we're not going to go into great detail about any of these things specifically. But if we were to go study out Elkanah's lineage, we'd go to First Chronicles chapter 6, verses 33 through 38, and we would actually see that Elkanah is a direct descendant of Levi, okay? Uh, as, in, uh, as, in, um, as in the tribe of Levi being one of the 12 tribes of the nation uh, of Israel. Okay, so being a Levite, Elkanah qualified to function in the capacity of a priest. And his sons would qualify for that, that same thing. That was, that was a special privilege that was set aside for men born of that bloodline, of, of the, the lineage of Levi. Okay, now, now even with that qualification, Elkanah wasn't employed in a temple. He wasn't necessarily functioning in the capacity of a priest, but he was, however, a devout man. He was faithful. He was a faithful guy. Um, he desired to lead his family in a godly manner during a time in history where sinful behaviors were running rampant throughout Israel. They were just running rampant throughout the land. So, so this time period in history would have been known as, as the time of Judges, Okay. Um, and what that essentially means, to really, to really sum it up, is that there was no king in Israel during this, this time in history. Okay, there were these judges who sort of operated on an intermediary level, doing what maybe kings would do for a whole nation, but for, for tribes instead. The, the 12 tribes were not unified because they didn't have a king to be unified under. Um, and as, as one might expect, where there was no godly leadership, things can take a turn for the worst, and they very much had uh, during this period in time. Judges... 21, uh, verse 25 says this. It says, uh, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in their own eyes. So in other words, people were living in a godless manner 
during this, this period in time. Okay, so now back to, uh, back to Elkanah here. Um, even so, being the devout man that he was, he was not without his imperfections. Elkanah wasn't perfect, as I'm not perfect, as, as all of us are not perfect. Um, he wasn't. Okay, so amidst, amidst this very ungodly time in history, we've got this context now, right? There's this man, Elkanah. He was a Levite, and then he had his family, okay? So um, moving along here, we also see uh, in, in the passage that, in verse 2, that Elkanah had two wives. He had two wives, okay? So, so that, well, having multiple wives doesn't help my case in saying that he's a devout man, does it? It absolutely doesn't. But it does help my case in saying that, um, that he wasn't perfect. So that's, that's why I threw that caveat in there. Um, now, we got to know, this isn't something that was prohibited by Jewish law during this period in time. Um, we learned a few weeks ago that divorce wasn't prohibited by Jewish law either. But, uh, you know, God, God tolerated these things because he had to tolerate them. His people were sinful, right? Um, we also know that uh, this isn't the first devout man in biblical history that, that took up multiple wives, it's not, uh, but we do know uh, for a fact that almost every time it happens, every time it happens, it's a problem. It's a problem. This was not God's original design for marriage. It creates problems, okay? It created a problem for Abraham when he married Hagar, right? Uh, at the suggestion of his wife, Sarah, um, because they wouldn't just be faithful and patient um, to see God, uh, God's promises take fruition, right? We just, we're still talking about that a little bit in, uh, in first service, uh, it became a problem for Jacob as well when he took up four wives. And everybody in this room, you better believe me, guys. You take up four wives, you're going to have strife in your household, right? <laughs> that is just too many wives. However, uh, apparently that guy from the Sister Wives did not get the memo, right? I don't know if you guys have seen that show, The Sister Wives, or not. But uh, th- this guy took up four wives. You know, he, he ignored the, the, the warning that we get in history. You know, 12, this, this show had like 12, somewhere between 12 and 19 seasons on the Travel Channel. Never understood it. Was always extremely confused by it. My mom liked Little People, Big World growing up, so the Travel Channel was on. And uh, yeah, t- I mean, 12 seasons of trying to make polygamy seem like it is an absolute hell. And, and, the, and the dude f- he failed miserably. I remember walking by one time and seeing one of these one-on-one interviews with the camera. And he says to the camera, he says, well... I bought each of them their own house. They've got their own house on my property now. And now they're mad at me because I can't be at every one of those houses at the same time. And it's like, well, duh, dude. <laughs> you know? It's like, what did you think? Anyway, it turns out polygamy is not legal in Utah. So they had to run away. I was looking this up briefly. I think they ended up in Las Vegas. Sin City, right? That's it. That's it. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, enough of sister wives. Uh, Elkanah has two wives. His first wife's name was Hannah, which also just so happens to be the name of my first wife. Pure coincidence, okay? His, his, second, <laughs> his second wife's name is Peninnah, which does not happen to be the name of my second wife. I've just got the one, right? I'm not going to fall for that polygamous facade, okay? Um, now, we learn in the passage as we read on that uh, Elkanah and Peninnah had many children, okay? She had sons and daughters with Elkanah. Hannah, on the other hand, had the opposite of that. She was barren. Um, The text goes on to tell her that the Lord had shut up her womb, which is just a common phrasing of words used to describe, you know, women who who are unable to get pregnant. Um, And we see that throughout Scripture, right? 
uh, Sarah and Abraham, they experienced the same thing. Um, so, yeah, we got to take note of that. Now, now, as we move on in the text, we read that on an annual basis, Elkanah would take his entire family, both of his wives, and all of his and Peninnah's children to the city of Shiloh to worship, okay, and um, to make sacrifices and to take part in this, this uh, big feast as they would take part in the sacrifice. Um, and, they, and they did this yearly. It was supposed to be a, a joyous time for them, okay? So Shiloh, a little background on Shiloh, it was a really important city, uh, in Israel during this period of time. It had been for many years. It would continue to be for many years. Um, and the word Shiloh actually means a place of rest. That's what it means. Um, it's the only place that Elkanah would take his family to worship annually on this trip. And that's because that's where the temple was located during this period in time. They would go to the temple to be in the presence of the Lord. Um, and, and, you know, that's a... Uh, oh, also one thing, Eli is there. Eli, the text makes mention of this guy, Eli, and he, Eli was actually the high priest and judge of Israel during this period of time, uh, and his two sons would be there as well. They would be, they, they resided at the temple. This is where they basically worked, um, and we're not going to really talk about them much more than, than this, and that's just because we don't get far enough into the text, but if anybody ever wants to do a study on how not to act from a place of spiritual authority, uh, these are the guys to look at. They were, they were, uh, they were bad. They weren't good guys at all. Okay. Um, during this annual trip to Shiloh, again, it was supposed to be this joyous time for Elkanah and his family, okay, in the sense that they would get to be together, they'd get to be uh, unified under this, this single thing that they all agree on, and that's, 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 that's that God is worth worshiping. Um, and it's a lot like what, what we do on Sunday mornings, right? Uh, there's joy in, in being unified in worship unto the Lord. There is. Um, and that's part of the reason why I say Elkanah was, you know, despite having these two wives, that he was a devout man. Um, he was intentionally leading his family into God's presence at a time in history where every man was doing that which was right in their own eyes. Okay? Even with his imperfections, he operated under the, under the mindset that we actually read about in the book of Joshua. Um, as for him and his house, they would serve the Lord. And again, uh, they would be one of the very, very few families during this, this period in time actually doing that. Okay, they would have stood out to, to people, like that there was still a family that was engaging in worship to the God of Israel, to our God. Um, so after Elkanah and the gang had arrived in Shiloh, uh, they did as they, you know, what they would do every year on this trip. And again, that's, that's they sacrificed, they worshiped, they took part in that sacrificial dinner and having this big feast um, and this is where some conflict starts to pick up, okay? So scripture tells us, just spit water all over my stuff up here. <laughs> scripture tells us in verses four through seven that uh, Elkanah, uh-oh, give me just a second. Apparently water and electronics don't mix well. I'm just kidding, everything's fine. So scripture tells us in verses four through seven that Elkanah gives portions of the food to Peninnah and all her sons and all her daughters. And then we see in verse five that unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And then in verse six we see that, that Hannah has an adversary and the adversary is there, right? It says, it says that her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. 
And then finally, in verse seven, it's revealed to us that this is something that happens every year on this trip to Shiloh, okay? They take this, this trip annually. They've taken it for years and years and years. And every year, this very thing happens. Peninnah, if you haven't figured it out, is Hannah's mentioned adversary. It's tough being a sister wife. Um, it really is. <clears throat> In verse six, and every year they would go up to the temple and Peninnah would poke and prod and stir up emotion and anger and wrath in Hannah. She would lead Hannah into a state of being self-focused until Hannah's weeping and without appetite and unable to eat that worthy portion that Elkanah had given her. Okay, so the, the, you know, the action behind these, or the emotion behind these actions is this, you know, Elkanah loves Hannah. He loves her. You can read in verse eight as he, as he tends to her with these, these very caring and honest questions. He says, uh, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than 10 sons? You know, that's his first wife. That's his first wife. And it's quite apparent that Elkanah's actions to, to take Peninnah up as a second wife, it only took place because in time they realized, oh man, we're not gonna be able to have kids. I'm, I'm Hannah's barren, right? Elkanah was giving Hannah that worthy portion, that double portion, because he truly loved her, and he didn't want her to feel any less value than anyone else at that table, right? He loved her in spite of the things she couldn't provide for him. But that act of love from Elkanah toward Hannah made Peninnah jealous every single year that he would do it. And, you know, you think Peninnah would be somewhat humble in the fact that God had blessed her with so many children, but, but she wasn't. She, she grew overtly malice in having seen this act of love towards Hannah so many times. And she did what she knows she can do in order to, to steal Hannah's joy from her, right? Peninnah counteracts Hannah's moment of feeling valued and points out the thing that most obviously would tear Hannah down, which was making note of the fact that she couldn't provide Elkanah with any children and therefore steals her joy. Okay, so this is the conflict. Now, Hannah, uh, in this instance, has a very difficult situation that she's in, okay? And she's been in it for years, you know, for a woman, for a woman, guys, and especially a wife who is unable to have children when she desires to have children. Um, it is a difficult thing. It's true struggle. It's true suffering. Um, it's, a, it's true suffering when any of our bodies in any situation feel like they're betraying us, right? In time, all of our bodies will betray us, though. Um, so, yeah, it's not an easy thing to go through. On top of that, she has this adversary just like we all do, that's reminding her of a lie. Her adversary is, is lying to her, although it, you know, like she might look around and say, it's true, it's true what that my adversary is saying. She's saying that she's weak, that she's not good enough, that she can't do the thing that a wife is supposed to be able to do. Uh, these, are, these are the same lies that, that our adversary, that Satan feeds us, right, in times of our trial, in times of our suffering. He gives us lies to make our eyes stray away from the Lord uh, and stray away from what he could potentially be doing with our season of suffering, right? That's what he does. Um, and for years on this very trip, that's exactly what would happen to Hannah. Her eyes would stray away from the Lord. She would be without appetite. She would, she would weep and separate herself out and become self-focused. But on this trip, something, something different happened. Something different happened. Unlike all those other trips to Shiloh that she's taken in the past and all the other times this situation has played out the way it does, she chooses to respond differently. She replaces discontentment in her situation with contentment in the Lord. Uh, and we're gonna read about that decision now as we look at verses nine through 11, okay? 
So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the, hand, or look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor come upon his head. So let's acknowledge that calling a, a baby boy a man-child is a funny thing. <laughs> okay, let's acknowledge that. Um, can you think about, like, think, imagine in our Instagram bios, these moms, man-child man mom, instead of boy mom, they say that. Um, anyway, um, what we read about here in verses 9 through 11, it's, it's Hannah's response to her affliction, okay? It's Hannah's response to her affliction. She's being provoked in two different directions, right? Peninnah is provoking her to focus inward on herself and in spite of her situation. Elkanah is provoking her to focus outward on something else despite her situation, right? She's, she, you know, um, and she responds, she responds. And, and how Elkanah uh, provokes her in that direction is he asks these prompting questions that would, that would inevitably cause her to take her eyes off herself for a moment. We see, Hannah, we, we see Hannah respond in faith after hearing those questions from her husband. We see her operate from a place of belief while experiencing discontentment. So in verse 9, uh, Hannah rises up after choosing to join her disjointed family as they took part in that sacrifice. Right? She, she must have decided, okay, I'll go sit with, you know, Elkanah has asked me his questions, I'll sit. Uh, she doesn't eat, though. We, re, we read later on that she chooses to eat. But uh, we see something... Um, we see this is something that she did after she had eaten and drank, right? And, and then what she does is she goes to the temple with intention. She's in Shiloh, she's, in, she's here, and she's with intention. She, she arises and she goes. Um, again, we're also made aware uh, of Eli the high priest, the judge of Israel. He's there, he's in the temple, and we're not gonna talk about him again, but he, the, I guess the one thing we could take note of is that uh, Hannah is in his line of sight as, as she enters into this, this season of prayer, okay? And they have a conversation after that. Study it out. I really do encourage you to. Um, you know, people respond in uh, surprising ways when, when, um, when we're acting from a place of faith. It looks strange. I think I saw somebody's Instagram story. I think it was Lauren Hart's, like, months ago, and it said that, like, when the whole world is running towards a cliff, if you're running away from the cliff you look like the crazy person, right? Um, and yeah, there's truth to that. I think it was maybe a C.S. Lewis quote. I don't know. Um, in verse 10, though, we see that Hannah is in bitterness of soul. Okay, now the word bitterness in our Bible, we see it used in the same way that the word angry or chafed is used, okay? Um, the Strong's definition shows that it means to be discontented. Okay, so as Hannah entered into the temple, what we know based off of this this statement that she's in bitterness of soul, um, is that in this very moment, she was not settled in her soul and she was not content with what God had done in her life. She wasn't. She was in bitterness of soul. She wasn't happy with her, with her situation. She wasn't. But, and this is the important thing to, to take note of, it was in that current state that she prayed unto the Lord. In her discontentment, she went into the presence of God. 
When I read this, uh, I, can't, I can't help but think about, um, about Jesus Christ, the son, the son of God, our one true Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Um, just a short time before he was going to be betrayed uh, by the people that he came into this world to save and to serve, to be a servant of. Um, he's, he's in that setting at the, at the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, uh, you know, we see the word agony, um, and uh, it's, the, it's the one time that it shows up in our King James Bible. But let's, let's read this verse real quick. Um, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Okay, so again, that, that word agony, it shows up one time in our King James Bibles. And it's, and it's in that, that verse. Okay, and just looking at the outline of biblical usage of the word agony, uh, we see that it means a few things. It means a few things. It means um, a struggle for victory. It means wrestling. It means a severe mental struggle. Its definition, biblical, biblical definition is, is anguish, okay? And it's in that state, you know, it's in that state that Jesus called out to God the Father. Sam mentioned this earlier, but we see, we see Jesus go to God to have conversation with God and ask questions like this amidst his agony. Uh, again, Mark 15, 34 uh, it says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We see Jesus, we see him having a severe mental struggle with the, with the reality of his situation. He feels forsook by, by his heavenly father. You know, and then back in the garden in Luke 22, verse 42, he asks, he asks this question. He says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Right? And this is part of that difficulty. This is the wrestling portion that we see in that biblical usage of the word agony, this internal battle that we've all, at some point or another, probably have experienced, right? Where we're, we're, we're in a position where we do not want to be going through the thing that God has us going through. Um, yeah, and we call out to God. We can call out to God. And we can, you know, we see Jesus do it. And Jesus in this moment, he's saying, I don't want things to work out the way they're working out. I don't, want, I don't want things to play out the way that they're playing out right now. I don't like it. This feels uncomfortable. But um, in Jesus's words, we, we also see the right response. We see, again, he goes to God in prayer. Um, but then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And guys, that's where we find the cure to our discontentment. Um, in those very words, by abiding in what God has for us, Right? And realizing that God's will for our lives is truly better than our own. And understanding that God's will for our lives is not something that we're supposed to organize into an appropriate shape to fit into an appropriate spot on a shelf in our lives and call upon it when we need it, right? When it's convenient, when, when it's perceived that, okay, God, I could really use you now, right? Like, that's, that's not it. It's not, it's not like floss the day before a trip to the dentist, right? You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about, Right? We know there's a dentist appointment tomorrow. We go into our, our bathrooms. We, we open up that drawer that, that, with, that's filled with stuff that we don't, it's like, we don't even know what's in that drawer, right? And we reach in behind all that stuff and we, we, fill, we fill the floss. It's there. It's right where we left it. And we pull it out and it's covered in dust, right? And we, and it poofs away. And, and then we call upon it to do what only floss can do. We say, oh, holy floss. I call upon you now to clean the spaces between my teeth so that tomorrow when I go to the dentist and they look in my mouth and they say, have you been flossing since last time we saw you? I'll just, I can, I can say with mild confidence, 
yes, I did, right? Yeah, I did. And then they'll get deeper in there and they'll say, man, there's just no evidence that you've been flossing. And, and then I'll just, you know, what we all say is, well, I don't know, I don't know, maybe my floss doesn't work right, I don't. But I did, I did floss, right? God's will is not like that. God's will is not something that we hide away and then call upon when it's convenient. You know, being obedient to God's will means that there will be seasons of suffering and times of agony that we have to go through. And we shouldn't run from it. What's comforting about what we see Hannah do in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10 is that she approaches God in prayer while being in this bitterness of soul, okay? While being discontented. She prays unto the Lord and speaks with him and weeps to him and tells him that she's struggling, right? She does. Verse 10, look at it. It says, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And we see that same thing of Jesus, right? In Luke twenty two forty four, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. The uneasy situation that Jesus was experiencing drove him into God's presence in an even more intentional way. That word earnest means with intention, okay? And as did Hannah, after years and years of not doing that, after years and years of, of looking inward, she decided to go towards the Lord. And it's never too late to do that. It's never too late to decide, I'm gonna get full of faith and I'm gonna approach God from a place of belief, right? Even if you haven't. If you think that, oh, I haven't been doing this, so I can't do it now, now that I know. But that's, that's another lie of our adversary, right? That we can't, we can't move past that state we've been in. Um, you know, um, man's natural inclination is oftentimes to remove God from the equation when we start going through a trial, through a season of suffering. And, 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 and you know, I say that with, with, uh, with many times in mind where that's exactly what I've done. I've pushed God away and said, well, I've got to deal with this thing now that, now that I've been, you know, brought into the mix of this situation. You know, we, we want to place blame on God. But the thing about man's natural inclination is that it doesn't matter anymore. It can kick rocks, right? Since we gave our lives to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, man's natural way doesn't have to be our natural way. It doesn't. You know, when we made our personal decisions to give our lives to him, we agreed to hand our burdens over to him, to approach him in our afflictions with our problems while we were, we were in them. His invitation to us is actually that we could find rest in him. That was his invitation to us. We could find rest in him amidst those times. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says this, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Unto your souls ye shall find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And guys, a soul that is bitter needs rest in the Lord. That's what a discontented soul needs is rest in the Lord. And that's exactly what we see Hannah realize and begin to do in this moment. She approaches God in prayer amidst her, her bitter soul, and she's going to find rest in him, okay? And that takes me to my very first key point. Um, you know, we, uh, in times of affliction, we must approach God in prayer and reveal to him the state we're in. You know, we can't, we can't write Jesus off when we're not getting our way. We can't. We can do it, but, we're, we, but we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't. 
You know, don't believe the lies of your adversary. Don't do the work of building a wall between yourself and God. Um, don't do it. When we do that, we're, we are placing blame. We're disregarding the fact that, that God's love for us is greater than whatever it is we think we needed the outcome of our situations to be in order to be content. We write that off. We need to ask ourselves, is not his love for us greater than, than 10 sons? Is not his love for us greater than the thing that we thought we needed? Fill in the blank, whatever it may be, you know? Is not his love for us greater than that? It is. It is greater than that. In verse 11, we see Hannah's prayer. Um, and what it says is that she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Okay, so, so here we have, we have Hannah's prayer, the, the, the prayer that in her affliction she felt led to speak it unto God. Um, and, and the gist, if we really summarize this, that of what Hannah is asking for is she's asking God for a son, right? She, she is asking God for a son. Now, if we overlook all the other stuff that, that makes up this prayer, and if we're not careful, any of us can make the incorrect, the incorrect assumption and say, well, isn't, isn't that just Hannah asking for the thing she wants? Right? Isn't that just Hannah asking for the thing that she knows she needs to resolve her situation? Um, and the answer is no. That's, that's not <laughs> what she's asking. Um, this isn't a selfish prayer. Let's look at it. Let's, be, let's, let's look carefully here. The first thing we see in this, in this verse is that Hannah vowed a vow. She vowed a vow. And a vow, guys, is not a request. Uh, and it's definitely not a demand. It's, it's actually the act of giving something up. Uh, it's an offering, to have vowed a vow means to have offered an offering. Think about uh, marriage vows, right? Think about marriage vows. What do we say? We say, I take ye, I take ye therefore to be my lawfully wedded husband or wife. And, um, and then what do we say? To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I promise to cherish and to love you always, right? These are this is not about asking for things. This is promising and, and vowing of what will be given in that relationship. Um, a, a vow is an offering. She also approached God respectfully. She calls him the Lord of hosts, meaning the, the, what this title means is it means the Lord of all multitudes. It means the Lord of all the armies of the earth. It means um, the Lord of the whole of creation. It's it's respectful because it's acknowledging how powerful and capable and in control like God truly is, right? Uh, this is actually the first time we see this title is in this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, it's up in verse 3, um, I believe. Uh, but going forward after this chapter in 1 Samuel, we, we start to see God uh, referenced as the Lord of hosts quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> but she's acknowledging his power. And then, and then she asks that he would see her affliction, which means, again, depression and misery. She, she asks that he would see her in the state that she's in. And again, this isn't a demand. It's a, it's a humble request. She says, if thou wilt, if it's your will, look on the affliction of your handmaid, if it's your will. And then the fourth thing here is that she calls herself his handmaid, uh, meaning bondwoman or servant, right? Um, She's referring to herself as, as his slave. And, 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 and this is, again, another aspect of this being a humble approach. She's acknowledging 
who she is in reference to this Lord of hosts. You see, Hannah's vow to the Lord is that if he would give her a son, well, then in service to the Lord of the whole of creation, she would give that child right back to God so that his life could be solely for the purpose of being a servant to God. Hannah's belief and Hannah's faith um, in, 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 in acknowledging what God is capable of led her to understand what her reasonable service to God actually was, right? Uh, A.V., these next two verses, they're not on the board, so don't worry about it. Um, Romans 12.1 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, now Hannah's prayer took place years and years and years before the Apostle Paul gave us the book of Romans, okay? Um, but, but what this is, is, is Hannah showing her, will, her willingness to be sacrificial. That's what it is. This is also her showing that she is no longer willing to be discontent in her situation, that she's no longer willing to be this person who wants for herself, who desires and longs for what she can't have. And maybe she's realized that because, because she's realized that God can't use people who do that. You know? God can't. Matthew 5, 16 tells us that this, let your light so shine forth before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. But guys, a person who only looks inward, who only focuses on themselves, like if that's a believer, then the light of God in their life is hidden. If they have a candlestick, it's hidden under a bushel. They're, they're just maintaining the darkness around them, that same darkness that God's light is supposed to shine through. You know, Hannah in this prayer says, I'm done doing that. She's done doing that. She doesn't say, God, please give me a son so that Peninnah will stop making me feel so, so insecure about what it is I'm not able to do for my husband. She doesn't say, God, please give me a son so that Elkanah doesn't have to pity me for the fact that I'm unable to provide him with this thing that a wife is supposed to be able to provide him with. She doesn't even say, God, please just give me a child because I want to love that child and I want to nurture that child, right? She doesn't, you know, it's not even that. She's, she's simply saying that if God would give her a son, well, then that son could be his. Um, and she has a new understanding. She understands now that there's no greater reason in life to take any action or to hope for any outcome to any situation if it wouldn't be in service to the Lord and for the sake of glorifying him. God taught Hannah so much through her season of suffering and through her time and affliction. And if, guys, if we would just pay attention and look beyond ourselves in these seasons of life, we would, we would be taught so much as well. We would be. First Peter 5.10 says this, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. And as you read on in 1 Samuel chapter 1, you see that Hannah is settled in this prayer. She finds peace in this prayer. We read that in verse 18. She's no more sad. Um, and it's because of what she's learned after she's suffered a while that she is settled. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm gonna share a testimony. So like three years ago, um, three years ago uh, in Kaya, when the room was like just this quadrant right here, um, maybe a little bit more than that, and two buildings ago, we were in St. Paul's, up the, up the street. Um, Pastor Briscoe, he preached a sermon on the book of Jonah. He preached a series of sermons on the book of Jonah. And um, 
what he was talking about in this specific day is he was, he was talking about storms in the lives of believers, right? So uh, this specific storm that he was talking about, it was, he called it a storm of grace, okay? And during that time, he invited uh, my wife, Hannah, and myself to come up and uh, share a testimony about a difficult season that we were going through. Man, just like Sam said, I, 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 I thought about this a lot, so I would not do this, okay? Okay. On that specific day that we shared our testimony, we were maybe a few months into Hannah having had her second miscarriage in one and a half years, okay? Um, and during that time, um, that one and a half year period, uh, you know, Hannah and I really struggled through, through what was a challenging season of life where we were experiencing discontentment, misery, depression, affliction for what felt like an eternity, you know? When you're in it, it feels that way. And I don't want to speak for Hannah too much, um, but for myself, uh, one of my main issues was just this wavering unbelief. Like every day I was feeling like, Ugh, I felt okay, and then I felt bad, and, and then I just, you know, I, I trust God, I don't trust God. Like it was just, it was wavering. I know my wife felt betrayed by her body. How could she not? I felt weak and helpless in my inability to do anything to help my wife suffering to the point where um, it just felt like I was constantly suffering myself. Like it was just... It was, uh, it was misery. The time after our first miscarriage, it was very hard to communicate with God. Like, that was the most, like, identifiable thing. I didn't want to, we didn't, we didn't want to read our Bibles. We didn't want to spend time in prayer. Coming to church was difficult. Like, um, just being in the presence of the Lord was difficult. And, uh, you know, in reflecting on that, and I'm, we're three years past this situation in life, almost at this point. Uh, that was her and I retreating from the Lord's presence because of our emotions, because we were longing for something that we didn't have. Um, and I think that, and I think, you know, I don't want to speak for Hannah again, but I think what I thought is that if I could, if we could just have a kid, all of our problems would be fixed. Like, that's where I was at. Um, so when it was medically safe to do so in that period of time, a little bit down the road, Hannah would get pregnant again. Um, and honestly, it was hard to be excited. It was more than anything just nerve-wracking. I remember finding out and then putting on like a smile because I wanted Hannah to feel comforted and, and, then, um, and then just feeling fearful, you know, just feeling fearful. And in all honesty, having this, this feeling of like, ah, oh, this isn't going to work out. Like, this isn't, I was, I was feeling that way. Um, and then nearly to the day, uh, she has her second miscarriage, almost in the exact same amount of time that it took her to have her first one after getting pregnant. Um, and I'll never forget it. Um, you know, Hannah woke me up real late in the middle of the night, and she, I could hear her voice. She was upset. It was dark in our room. It was in the early hours of the morning. And she said, Nick, my stomach hurts. Like, I don't feel good. I think I'm having a second miscarriage. It feels just like the first time. And, um, and, and right away, I just thought, oh, I knew it. I knew you weren't going to let us have this one, God. Um, that was my thought. Then those feelings of unbelief and dissatisfaction, they just started all over again. But honestly, they were worse because having back-to-back -back miscarriages, statistically, it's like it makes your chances of ever having a viable pregnancy just, uh, just drop significantly. Um, and uh, as much misery as we were experiencing during this time, we knew that we had to be realistic about those statistics. So we started trying to adjust to the idea of well, maybe we'll just be a married couple who doesn't have kids. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, to not have kids as a married couple, that's, that's fine. It's just not what we had been, you know, thinking about. So it took an adjustment to, to make that feel okay. 
Um, but, but like Brandon said last week, uh, the things that we don't have, those are the things that we long for the most. So as much as we were trying to adjust, we were also longing for this child still. And man, it was just this cycle of double-mindedness in our house, like just, just continuous double-mindedness. We want to be okay, but we can't be okay unless we get what we want. Um, and as far as our marriage goes, uh, it, was, it was the saddest season that we experienced together. Uh, now, after all that had happened, and nearing uh, the second or third month mark, after the second miscarriage, we had this, this coming to Jesus moment. We sat down in our living room, and we had this tear-filled conversation uh, where we were just really honest about where we were both at, and... Um, Hannah proceeded to, to share with me this story in 1 Samuel. And, um, you know, at this point, I was like, I was barely out of discipleship one. Um, and uh, um, I still sort of felt like a baby Christian in a lot of ways. I don't even know if I knew there was a book called 1 Samuel. And if, and if, and if I did, if I did, I, I, called, it, I called it 1 Samuel. And I was, calling, I was calling 2 Samuel 2 Samuel. And, you know, Brandon sat me down in discipleship one time and said, hey, Nick, you got to stop saying that. You got to stop saying that. Your boys are going to make fun of you. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then I was thinking, I'm, I'm Donald Trump. Like, just doing what Donald Trump does. <laughs> um, okay, I'm sorry. I needed something to make you laugh. Was my... Um... So anyway, we had this, this, this conversation, and as sad as we are, we're sick and tired of feeling apathetic and, uh, and feeling so just exhausted by our discontentment. But Hannah shares with me that she, she, she read 1 Samuel. I think she was prompted to do that by Lorena Reyes. I think that was who made that recommendation to her. Um, and, and Hannah shared with me what she learned, and what she learned is that she didn't want to long for things anymore that she didn't have, and that she just wanted to be content and, um, and I was so relieved to hear her say that because that's, that's all I wanted, too. I just wanted to be content with the Lord. We, we both knew that after this season that that is what we wanted. Um, and at the end of this conversation, we, I remember sitting down and just, like, looking at each other and saying, like, okay, going forward, we have to be okay with just having Jesus Christ, like, that's the, only, that's the only way to move forward if we're going to continue to walk with the Lord. And um, we declared that to each other, and, and, then, and then we didn't have to be miserable anymore. We didn't have to. It was around that time that Brandon invited us up to share that testimony in, in the book of Jonah when he was going through that series. And um, it wasn't even in a thought in our heads at the time. I, I promise you it wasn't. You know, I remember standing up there saying, I don't know if, if I'm ever going to be a father, um, but if I'm not, I got to be okay with that. And um, just a few months down the road, we would, we, would, we would be hearing the heartbeat of our son for the very first time. Um, and we're so grateful for that. We're so grateful for our little boy, but what we're, what we're more grateful for than anything is, uh, is, that, is what God taught us during this season of suffering. And what he taught us is that um, ultimately, ultimately what he taught us 
is that our contentment has to be based in Jesus Christ alone and, and nothing else. Nothing else is stable enough. Nothing else lasts forever. Nothing else is, is eternal, you know? It's not. Okay. And that takes me to my second key point. Uh, Jesus is with us in our affliction and contentment can be found in him alone. It can be. Sorry. <laughs> Gosh, sorry. You know, 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But for a moment, and in light of things, our afflictions are but for a moment. They really are. Um, but man, when you're in it, it feels like an eternity, and I say that with my testimony in mind. But man, we have to remember, like Sam said this morning, there's fellowship in knowing his sufferings. There's fellowship in entering into the sufferings of Jesus Christ. There is. Um, he's with us, you know. The church is with us. His, his spirit is with us. His word is with us. All the things he replaced himself with, they're with us. You all were with us, you know. You all were with us. Um, good friends that we could lean on and that we could, we could cry to, you know, if we had to. Um, the truth is that in those seasons, God, God's work begins as soon as the afflictions do. They begin as soon as the afflictions do. He, doesn't, he does not miss a beat. And if you just pay attention and look past yourself, you see that. You see that he's working. Um, finishing. Okay, let me get myself. Okay. Finishing out verse 11. We've got a little bit of time, so I'm not going to go through this in great detail, but at the end of Hannah's prayer, there's this caveat, right? There's this thing that she adds to it. She says, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Okay, so what the heck is that, right? That's the first question you ask when you call 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel. Um, but what we see here is Hannah's vowing this vow, right? And she's, she's vowing and promising that if the Lord uh, would give her a son, that that son would just be his. She's going to give him right back to the Lord. And the last thing that she says about this razor coming upon her head, uh, quite literally what she means is she, that he won't cut his hair. She's saying, I'm not going to, I won't cut his hair. Um, and what that is all about uh, is that Hannah, on her future son's behalf, is making reference to what's called the Nazarite vow. Okay, and maybe some of you have heard it. Some of you maybe haven't. Uh, Pastor Best did this awesome message on the Nazarite vow, like two mission focuses ago. Yeah, um, it, I don't know if somebody wants to throw that in the Kaya chat. Let's do it. I don't. I, I looked for it. I couldn't find it. Um, but uh, what the Nazarite vow is, if we look at Numbers chapter six verses, if we look at that whole chapter, number six, but verses one through five, to make sense of what Hannah is saying here in her prayer. Um, and I'll just read verses uh, one and two real quick. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of the Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. And then you skip down to verse five, uh, and it says, and shall let the locks of his hair on, of his head, of the hair of his head grow. Okay, so Sam talked about this in first service, talked about the word consecrated, right? 
Um, in the Nazarite vow, the root word of Nazarite is Nazir, and it means, it means consecrated. That's what it means, okay? So God told Moses way back, way back in the desert, he told Moses to tell the children of Israel that if they wanted, they could take this vow to be consecrated, to be separated out in service to God, and that this would take, uh, it would take priority in their lives above all things, Okay? <laughs> So if you read on in number six, you find out amongst a lot of things that uh, they, could, they could specify the amount of time they wanted to take this vow. Um, and while they were in that period of time, that they had to do all these specific things. They like, couldn't, eat, they couldn't eat grapes, they couldn't drink wine. They, one of which of those things was they, they wouldn't cut their hair unless they were like near a dead body or something and the aroma of the dead body got on their hair. Uh, okay, it's, 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 uh, you, you need to study it out. <laughs> Um, they couldn't be defiled, and that was, that was defilement. Um, but anyway, Hannah is just simply making reference to this vow. Now, in Hannah's case, her vow was that her son would be a Nazarite all the days of his life. There was no time stamp on the vow for her, her future son. And, and after praying this prayer and offering this offering and making it, no, making it so that her countenance was no more sad, which again we read in verse 18, after being settled in the Lord and in his presence, uh, she would go on the next morning uh, to become intimate with Elkanah. They would, they would know each other. In scripture, right, that means they had sex. Um, so they did that, and uh, then the text tells us that God remembered Hannah, right? God remembered her prayer, and Hannah would become pregnant. She would be, become pregnant with, who, uh, with, with the name of the book, you know, Samuel, right? He, he's the author of these, these books, <laughs> Um, and three years later, after being weaned from Hannah, and in Jewish tradition, uh, it's normal for breastfeeding to take place for three years. Um, so, so Samuel is weaned. Uh, Hannah returns to the city of Shiloh, and with, with joy in her heart, hands her son over, that son that she longed for so much, um, to, to live a life dedicated to serving the Lord, Okay? You know, Sam said, fathers, can you imagine what, what Abraham had to do to Isaac? But mothers in the room, can you imagine giving away your child at three, you know, at three years old? Um, but she did that. She, she handed him over, and she didn't do it unwillingly. She did it with, with joy, you know. Um, she would turn him over to a life dedicated to serving the Lord. He would be raised in the temple that she vowed her vow in, and uh, God would use him to do great things throughout his life, incredible things. Some things, just a few things to call out that Samuel did uh, in service to God is Samuel would end up being the last of the judges of Israel. We can read that in 1 Samuel 7, and then also in Acts 13, verse 20. He would be the first in a new line of prophets after Moses. He, he was a prophet. Um, we read that in Acts 3.24. Uh, and then another thing, not, not just, you know, not the least of what he did, but another thing that he, that's worth calling out is that he, God would use him to anoint two kings over the nation of Israel, Saul and then David, David being the one that worked out, you know, quite a bit better. Uh, <laughs> David uh, also being the king in Israel whose lineage would in time include that of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's why we call him, you know, the son of David. Because of Hannah's faith in the midst of her suffering, Samuel was born... Um, in that selfless prayer and in that selfless act of giving away her baby. And, that, and again, it's that baby she longed for for so many years. 
But through Samuel, through Hannah's act of faith and willingness to give back to God what he had given to her, uh, the whole nation of Israel would be, would be profited in an extraordinary and needful way by, by being unified under a king in Israel, heavily due to the spiritual leadership that Samuel provided, you know, that all started with that mother's faithful vow. So what we see here, guys, is that God uses the faith of his people, right? God uses the faith of his people, and he uses it to do things that we couldn't even think of. You know, Hannah, she did not know that Samuel was going to go on to do these things. She couldn't have. But, but, but it was such a willing offering that, man, that God used it. God used it. And, and we can, you know, we can experience unbelief. We can. And we can experience seasons of suffering and seasons of doubt. But we can go be in the presence of God during those times. You know, when Hannah went into the book for Samuel, what she did is she went into the presence of God. And out of it, she got contentment. Right? And I'm so grateful that she did that. Um, we can be with God in the midst of those moments. We can cry out with tears in our eyes and say, Lord, I believe Help thou mine unbelief. We can do that. God is with us in our seasons of struggles. And, and on the backside of those seasons, he's going he's gonna to establish us. He's going to strengthen us. He's going to increase our faith. He's going to make us understand his character in a way that we hadn't before. Uh, but, we, but we have to look past ourselves in those seasons. We do. So as the, as the worship team uh, comes back up, or whoever is coming up, um, I'll just say this, you know, my wife and I, we, we, we decided to name our son Shiloh, and a lot of you, I'm sure, have seen him around. Um, and I mentioned this earlier, but the word Shiloh, it means a place of rest. Okay, that's what it means. But, but we didn't name him that because we find our rest in Shiloh. We didn't, we didn't name him that because we thought we were going to find our rest in Shiloh. And to be totally honest, <laughs> the amount of rest that we have gotten since Shiloh has been born has been, has been minimal. <laughs> I've never been so tired. <laughs> but we named him Shiloh because, quite frankly, you know, just with everything that happened in our lives in mind, uh, we, we, we don't think God would have been willing to, to give us a child or to, to, do, to do whatever, to, to use us fully until we realized that we had to take our afflictions to him. Um, and until we realized that we can only find our rest in Jesus Christ. And that's that's why we named him that, because he's a constant reminder every time we look at his face, every time we say his name. Um, it's just a reminder that, man, Jesus Christ used that season of suffering in our lives. And uh, it wasn't until we realized that we can only find rest in him that we got through it, that we saw the backside of it. So, so my question for all of you in the room as we close out here, guys, is this. It's, it's have you found a place of rest? Have you found a place of rest? Have you found a place of rest or are you tirelessly consumed by discontentment in your life? Are you obsessed with your situation's outcomes? Are you fixated on things that, that aren't working out the way you want them to work out? Are you fixated on things that worked out a way that you didn't want them to work out? Are you, are you, are you longing for something that maybe the, the difficult truth is that God might not have for you? Are you? Are you unwilling to be patient? Are you unwilling to find out what the Lord does have for you in his timing, according to his will? 
You know, anybody in the room who feels any of those things, like now is the time to deal with it. Don't, don't retreat from God amidst your affliction. Go to him in the midst of your affliction. Go to him right now and work something out. We're gonna have counselors up here who are, who are gonna wanna talk to and, and, and pray with you. Uh, and for anybody in the room who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, for any, anybody in the room who may be just visiting and they, you know, you're not, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, the answer to that question for you is it, um, inevitably it's no. I have not found a place of rest. It's I don't have rest. Uh, I don't. And, um, and you won't find rest until you find out who Jesus Christ is. Again, nothing else is sustainable enough. Nothing else provides enough security. Nothing else will last forever. Every, you know, it's, it's eternal things that we have to find our rest in if we're gonna have true rest and if we're gonna have true joy and if we're gonna have peace that passes all understanding. So I'm inviting you to come up and, and ask some questions about who Jesus Christ is. Take this time to do that. There's no, there's no pressure in asking the question, but there are answers to those questions. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray right now that we wouldn't listen to the lies of our adversary and that we would come up and have these conversations, okay? Um, God, thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for who you are and uh, God, for your word and for uh, just how you work through seasons of suffering. God, I pray that anybody in this room who's experiencing something that they just wish they weren't going through, that they would, that they would just in this moment take, take a second to consider what looking beyond themselves actually is and that, and that they'd wanna do that, that they'd wanna see past their, their, their discontentment and see the glory of how you work in these seasons. So, um, God, I pray that now and for anybody in this room who doesn't know you, I pray that they would, they would just take a bold step and walk up and ask, knowing that nothing has to come of it, but God, what can come of it is better than anything that they, they would have known otherwise. It'll change their life for the better. Um, God, we love you. Uh, you are a good father. Um, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.